0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined, as always, by Chris Bouguet. Hey,
1: Chris. Hey, Rachel. Guess what I got for you today? Tell me. Tell me. I got got something to play with. You ready? So first, I'm going to let you guess. I'm going to let all the um, people listening guess, OK? I'm going to shake something here, and you listen to it. OK. That, you heard that. What do you think that might be? It sounds like a puzzle in a box. Could be a puzzle, sure. Now, puzzles are usually made out of cardboard. Listen again.
0: It does sound, it sounds like a puzzle in a Tupperware container.
1: (laughs) Well, it is in a plastic container, see that's me tapping on the plastic container. Okay. It's large, you see it now, I'm showing it to you, giving you a little hint, it's like a large, it's like a big Tupperware container. Okay. Um, But it's filled with, third try. Is it
0: filled with with 3D symbols?
1: Not 3D symbols. Well, sort of, but not 3D printed symbols. Ready? This is what this is. I'm going to crack it open here, and I'm going to show you these, this, this, box that I got for free filled with little pieces of plastic called Legos these are now we are not sponsored by Legos this is not a a sponsored podcast but so these bricks are from the Lego Foundation and if you go to legobraillebricks.com you can order your own sets to use and what they are is this giant bin of Legos and which what, what they come with is um uh, you're probably familiar with Legos, how they have that like big green, flat surface, and you can build on those. Yeah, they're like the grass, the Lego grass? Yes, for sure. So there's three of those, but they're gray, not green, right? Three big ones. Um, and then inside, there's a bunch of packages. There's four different packages. and what they have on the braille bricks are um, are little. So you can see there, there's one, this is a yellow one. And the way Braille works, because I know we're talking to a bunch of speech therapists and, and and parents and others that work in AAC primarily, they might not be familiar with Braille, but um, Braille, the way in general it works is that there's a configuration of six dots. People are familiar with the dots, right? Um, but there's six of them and they are in, and so it's uh, two columns of three, right? which sort of fits into a kind of this braille uh, fits into this lego thing where there's like you know raised surfaces that snap together so the way braille works is just this configuration of six dots two columns of three and the way the lego braille uh, bricks work is they have a text-based symbol uh, printed on the bottom to help you learn what the configuration is on the brick. So, so for instance, this particular brick that I'm holding up has two dots along the top, and then, so let's do it in in order, it would be, uh, row one, column one would be dot number one, row one, column two would be dot number two, right? So if we do one, two, three, four, five, six, am I describing that well enough or, or do you think?
0: Yeah, I got it, I want it.
1: So at the bottom of the Lego brick, there is a text-based print. And so like this one has two dots, one at the top uh, in position number one and another one in on the top in position number two. And underneath that says, this is the letter C. Right, um, and so if you were to feel these 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 dots, they're in the same configuration as if you were feeling Braille, and someone who is learning Braille could learn that oh, these Lego bricks, this is C, and, I'm, and when I'm doing Braille, this is C, right? Um, and then this other one that I'll hold up here is yeah, here yeah, perfect A is the perfect example. A is just the only dot is the very first dot, position number one, right? Um, And then, let's see, E E is position number one and position number four, meaning those are the only two dots raised, and that is the letter E, right? So the idea here is that you get these Braille bricks for free from Lego, they send them to you, and then you can learn Braille and you can teach someone Braille by using these raised dots and putting them in different configurations. So, for instance, I could spell the word with the letters we just talked about ace you know what i mean a c e put them in that order snap them onto that gray uh or like you said grass you know that base layer put them together and then i could feel across and be like okay that's a that's c that's e that's the word ace pretty cool huh
0: super cool okay so you've perked my interest with the word free tell me more about this because I feel like nothing ever is free.
1: <laughs> no, it's literally free. You go to legobraillebricks.com, which also that website has tons of um, free activities and a uh an online asynchronous course that you can take to teach you how to do it all sorts of activities about um how to use these braille bricks um and then over on the far right it's like order and you go over there you click on it and you just say how many you you want you know um i don't know if there's a limitation it because meaning that you might have to work for a school. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. That's something for everyone to go do their own investigation. I certainly ordered it through my school district account, right? I ordered it under my Loudoun County Public Schools um, job title. Uh, But yeah, I mean... um, Just this, earlier this week, I met with a teacher of the visually impaired and one of the assistive technology people we work with and one of the instructional facilitators for technology, and we just, I threw these bricks onto the table and I was like, let's brainstorm. We know you have a student that's blind, that is in the younger grade levels, they're learning what Braille is and how to use it. Lego has all this free stuff, uh, free activities, but also, like, they're they're Legos, they're kids like to play with Legos, you know?
0: No, I was just going to say, like, this is awesome. (laughs) I'm really excited about this. Thank you for sharing this. And I have a feeling our listeners are really excited, too. Um, I feel like Legos are so fun for all kids. And if we can teach kids who are learning Braille through something fun, like that's the best of both worlds.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's actually how it came up. Is that uh, the instructional facilitator that I was working with was talking about how they're using um, Lego kits for robotics, right? And then she was saying, but I have this student with a visual impairment, and we need to brainstorm, you know, how the the, the Lego robotics wasn't exactly accessible the way it's for for, for people who are blind. Um, that said, in in discovering more about what these Lego bricks and diving into his website, I found that a bunch of uh, commercially available Lego sets also have audio instructions. So the way most Lego sets work is you open up the, um, the box, and inside is this uh, stapled-together instructional instructional manual that uh, is picture-only, and usually there's not any text-based. Uh, oftentimes we've used this as an example of UDL, Universal Design for Learning, except if you were blind, you wouldn't know how to follow the instructions because you couldn't see the uh the instructions in this manual. So what I come to discover is that they have audio directions for a number of them. You can go onto the website, find your commercial um uh product, see if there's audio instructions and you can actually download the audio instructions and listen to a step-by-step guide of how to put your your Lego product together, which is another little cool thing I just discovered I didn't realize existed.
0: Well, well Lego for the accessibility. I love it. I'm so excited. This is great.
1: Oh, I have more to tell you. There's more. There's more. So, I mean, this is just a little nugget for myself, um, and I guess for all the listeners. But the, one of the bags that, that, that one of the bags that comes has different symbols on it that are not letters. Okay. Um, so, for instance, this one has an X on it, but it's not an X. It's a multiplication symbol, right? And this one has a plus symbol, right? So, the certain configuration of the six dots would mean plus right um and there's an equal sign right but one of them is a octothorpe do you know what an octothorpe is i'm going to draw some knowledge no on that
0: no 100 percent no
1: <laughs> all right those is one. this that's one of those obscure reference knowledge things that you you learn once and it sticks in your head an octothorpe is a number sign okay it's the fancy name for the number sign right the, the pound symbol okay right? okay um so what I learned when I was talking to the um, the teacher of the visually impaired, I said, hey, on the Lego bricks, I noticed that the text at the bottom, like, for instance, I mentioned the letter E, right? But it also has a number. So what it actually says is E5. And I said, I don't understand why this one brick can sometimes mean E, and this one configuration of where the dots are means E, but in another context, it means five. And the teacher of the visually impaired explained, well, the way it would actually work in Braille, and again, if we were snapping these down on the pieces of plastic uh, the, the, to put them in order, to signify that the next—so th- the way it works is you put the number symbol down, the octothorpe down first. The person who's using Braille feels the octothorpe uh, configuration, and that is a trigger to say, oh, the next thing is not an E, it's a 5, right? It's not a letter, it's a number, right? So I don't know a lot about Braille. Um, I know uh, just enough to be dangerous. Uh, for years, we worked putting together, uh, worked c- closely with our teachers of visually impaired to come up with a process for evaluate what tools uh, students might need, like what, what's the right, Uh, There's uh, Braille readers out there, you know, what would be the right Braille reader to use? So we worked with them closely, and we have a great relationship with them. Um, And so it was great to hear her give me this little tutorial on how that works. And she said also, too, you have to understand that there's another part of Braille called contractions. So... The letter C, for instance, she was explaining to me, when you feel over the letter C, sometimes it doesn't mean the letter C. Uh, Sometimes it means the word can. Like, why would you, can being, and it's just so uh, related to me with core vocabulary. If you are, if you're, you're learning braille and you become proficient in reading braille would you always need to spell out the word can for as frequently as as frequently that word is used right just like core vocabulary can be a a frequently used word so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be efficient to write out the word can in braille every single time and there's other words like this there's i think like 200 contractions where if they were reading in a sentence in context and that sentence was i can go to the store right Uh, then they wouldn't need to spell out the word can because they could just put the letter c and that would trigger them as a contraction well what is the letter c stand for in this longer sentence well it it, it would stand for the word can, right? What, but basically what I'm saying is the most, many frequently used words, they've shortened the braille to just be the first letter or a different configuration of, of the sentence are of the word because you don't need the whole word and I just thought that was a great analogy to um, to core vocabulary
0: Wow I've learned so much this in this podcast recording Thank you Chris for all the the knowledge that you just dropped and I guess thank you to your teacher of the visually impaired because she gave that knowledge to you and now you gave it to me and also thousands of talking with tech listeners
1: if you work with teachers of the visually impaired and i bet many of our listeners do and we are certainly always talking about um cortical visual impairment on this podcast we have many episodes about it but other visual impairments as well these Braille bricks might be something for you to look into, you know? Like I said, free resource from LEGO. Why not? Why not get them and explore them? Um, And I will say, too, I mentioned it before, but I'll mention again, the website has many, many activities that explain how to use them and they're, what I was looking at that it crossed all the things off my list you know and the first thing is are they fun right yeah they seemed like fun activities they weren't like drill and kill activities because it's lego right it's all about learning uh learning made fun learning with play
0: I love this Chris thank you for I feel like I want to go get them like right, right now <laughs> I'm going to go on the website as soon as we stop recording and I'm going to get some braille legos
1: So I hope that helps you build some more knowledge, construct some sentences, come up with new strategies. See what I did there? That was a dad joke, because of the Legos building bricks, right?
0: I I, I should have assumed a dad joke was coming.
1: (laughs) So Rachel, tell us about Patreon.
0: Okay, Chris, we have, I think we have four new Patreon members, which was super exciting. Um, We have Holly, Dana, Renda, and Kim. Um, who just signed up for Patreon, which is super exciting. Um, If you guys are interested in even more AAC content, lots of behind the scenes videos, interview clips, resources you can use in your therapy, Um, we have two years worth of content in our Patreon. Um, It also helps support this podcast. So if you are becoming a huge Talking With Tech fan, uh, we would very much appreciate your support on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com backslash Talking With Tech and uh, sign up. Um, That allows this podcast to happen. Without our Patreon, we would not be able to do this podcast weekly. Um, That helps to pay for all of our expenses and also for our team who works so hard to put this podcast together. Michaela, Luke, shout out. We love you guys. Um, So please go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech to sign up.
1: So let me tell you a little bit about the interview today. The interview is with a legend in the field, Tracy Kovach, and she is best known for, well, lots of different things. I guess there isn't one best thing she's known for, but one thing you may have heard her name uh, associated with is that she is the author of the Augmentative Alternative Communication Profile, A Continuum of Learning, which is an assessment people use to measure proficiency on the use of language and AAC.
0: Yeah, and I really like this assessment tool because it actually breaks down the different areas of AAC. So we always think about linguistic competency, like language when we're thinking about AAC, but I feel like um, you know, we sometimes forget there's other areas of competency, uh, that an AAC user needs in order to be successful. So like operational competency, like how do I use the device? How do I turn it on? How do I charge it? How do I navigate to it? How do I change the volume? Um, and then of course, like, you know, social and strategic. So there's different areas and different competencies with AAC. And I feel like this, the AAC profile, um, does a good job of kind of detailing that and is a good reference when you're trying to figure out how to support your students who are using AAC.
1: Now Tracy is a veteran in the field of AAC and has been working in the field for for many years and so of course when we got talking we just talked about tons of stuff so this is actually part one of my interview with Tracy Kovach. Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind the scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech welcome to the talking with tech podcast my name is chris bougay and i'm here today with my very special guest tracy kovach tracy how are you doing i'm good chris how are you good good so you and i go back a handful of years now um and maybe we'll tell that story in a little bit but first let's start with who you are and what you do for those that might not know you
2: Okay, thanks, Chris. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Tracy Kovac, and I am a speech language pathologist or speech language therapist, whichever you prefer. Um, I've been a speech language pathologist for I've stopped saying exactly how many years now. I'm just doing over 30 years. So just leave it at that. Um, And I really got started in the field um, really liking language. Um, And that's what I really focused on in my graduate studies. And I also focused a lot on um, primarily children with significant disabilities. I didn't know exactly what those were at the time, um, but that's how I kind of got started. My first job actually was at the Cerebral Palsy Center in Denver, Colorado. I'm from Colorado and that's where I am now. I've worked, so I worked at the Cerebral Palsy Center for several years. I've worked in the public schools, I've worked in clinics, private clinics, as well as at the children's hospital for a number of years. Um, And I've also done private practice, which is basically what I'm doing now, as well as some consulting. Um, So I've been in the field for more than 30 years. And, um, you know, I've really, really liked it always. Um, I've never gotten really bored with it or thought, oh, why did I pick this? I'll tell you a really quick story. The reason I even got into speech pathology in the first place is I remember I was maybe a freshman or a sophomore in college, and I was with my dad one time. It was a Christmas holiday, and he sa- I said, well, you know, I have to declare a major. And at the time, I was in the field of speech and drama, And I said, you know, I'm going to I think I'm going to declare my major in speech and drama. And my dad said, okay. so like what kind of a job do you get if you have a major in speech and drama? And I thought, well, I guess none. I mean, I don't know. So I literally went to the catalog and I went under speech and drama was speech language or speech communication or something like that. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. And that's how I declared my major. So it was not exactly, um, you know, a very intellectual choice. But I loved it.
1: That sounds like every dad ever. <laughs> this yeah, I'm sure. People, but at saying like, hey, what kind of job are you gonna get with that sort of degree?
2: Right. All right. <laughs> What he didn't realize is that he had to continue to pay for my education beyond my bachelor's bachelor's degree, given the, um, you know, selection that I made. So I'm not sure if he was all that happy, but I think he probably was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would imagine because it seemed to turn out all right. I mean, 30 years plus in the field um, and have some great accomplishments. So uh, I would say that, yeah, I bet he is pretty proud. Yeah. Um, so let me, let's me let go back and talk uh, specifically. Now, you said right now you're working in private practice, but um, you're also known just in case people are like, wait, this name sounds familiar. Uh, once upon a time, you published a, a uh, pretty significant piece of work. You want to talk about that? You know what I'm talking about, right?
2: Well, I think I do. Um, um, A couple of things. One, I got very involved in the area of auditory scanning, and so along with an OT colleague, occupational therapy colleague, and I, we wrote a chapter in the um, Light Buchelman book that they edited and Reichel book that they were editors of about auditory scanning. So that was one thing that I did that I really enjoyed doing, and I still am very involved in that sort of kind of intellectual understanding. But the other thing that I did was, and this was largely with the help of the colleagues that I worked with at Children's Hospital, is I published um, an assessment tool called um, the AAC profile, a continuum of learning. And it really is a, a profile that um, is a continuum. It's intended to be a continuum and it's not a, an assessment, an initial assessment tool. It's really a tool that I hope, and I've used throughout the years um, to measure progress. Because, you know, one time I thought, well, you know, what are the goals that I have in my, I was at the children's hospital at, at the time. And I thought, what are the goals that I have in my, you know, therapy plan for these kids? And there were things like, you know, being able to categorize farm animals and, you know, zoo animals and stuff like that. And I thought, well, I mean, you know, I've been told that categorization is an important thing. So that makes sense. But then I thought, how does that relate to using the communication device. I mean so great, I can say cow versus giraffe. Um, and so I started thinking and I and I was very influenced by the work that um, Janice Light did in terms of defining communicative competence. And she did that. she published that work way back in 1985, where she identified four areas of communicative competence, operational, linguistic, social, and strategic. and she really defined them and that really, caught my eye and started me thinking about, so what am I doing that really is working towards that competency in those areas? And turns out that categorization of farm animals wasn't quite what I was hoping for. So, um, Along with my colleagues, we started looking really at what we were doing and how we were developing our programs in order to reach communicative competency. Not that categorization isn't important. it is. But that's not necessarily what we need to be working on. And that's not what we hope to be accomplishing in terms of communicative competence. So that's how the continuum really got started and how I developed it as a profile. And once again, it is a continuum because, you know, um, we worked with kids at all different levels, you know, some were very competent operationally, but they didn't have a clue socially. Um, and some were not so good operationally, but they really got it linguistically, except that they couldn't access their system. So they didn't have access to the language. So we had a lot of um, of diverg- diverging skills and abilities. And so we really wanted to look at how this was a continuum and, and it could be used, you know, we had kids that would be in different classrooms with different therapists every nine months. Um, And it was sort of like, and so, and every time, you know, you go to a conference, you hear something new and you start over again. And it's kind of like, you know, these guys can't afford us starting over all the time. So that's how it kind of got started. So.
1: Sure. In fact, I, I think that starting over is one of our biggest barriers that we talk very little about. And I think it's maybe this is me going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it's really thinking that um, that's one. not not only is it one of our biggest barriers, but it's getting worse would be meaning uh, with the pandemic, I don't think has helped that at all. But even before that, it was an issue that there was such high uh, turnover in staff. And so, someone working on language development with an AEC uh, device might have seven to 10 different speech therapists in the course of their uh, just in their teen years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let alone their elementary. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. it's just a high rate of that.
2: And, you know, whenever kids transition from one grade level to another, even just grade to grade, but when they transition from a school like an elementary school to a secondary school, you know, I was faced with. Um, you know, people coming to me saying, well, obviously the system doesn't work anymore. And it was like, well, I'm pretty sure it does work, but oh, it's getting close to five years. So we better get a new system. Right. But, you know, really what it changed was their supports and all of the fact that, you know, it was a totally different environment. And yet people weren't looking at that and they weren't looking at what the student could really be doing as a continuum. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think starting over is a huge issue and it's It's, um, you know, it's, it's part of what we do, I think, to, you know, it's not like we're trying not to do a good job. Um, We're doing the best we can, but a lot of us don't know what the heck we're doing, number one. (laughs) And number two, it's like, well, okay, I'll just take a shot at it. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I, what you said there it really resonated with me. Like it, the people saying the system doesn't work, um, or this system doesn't work, and the, the fact is, it's true. The system doesn't work, but it's the support system that doesn't work, not necessarily the AAC system. Right. And that's what the communication profile, at least one part of it, is is uh, addresses because it's sort of a through line. Right? You can right. back and see, okay, what is where are we on this continuum? Um, and I know a bunch of th- therapists that use it regularly as a as a sort of a metric to show the, the growth of uh, someone's skills. So, and that's great. how you designed it to work, right?
2: Exactly. That's
1: great. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Let me take us back here for a second to also, like you said, um, you when you first got interested in speech and drama, and then you moved over to, to, to speech and language, right? Um, how did you get interested specifically in AAC, right? Because speech and language is still such a huge field, but AAC narrows that quite a bit.
2: Well, that yeah, that was um, and and it's an ongoing process, of course, as it always is. But um, so, I, as I mentioned, my first my first job was at the Cerebral Palsy Center in um, Denver, and first of all, what I learned about cerebral palsy, I learned from the OT that I worked with at the Cerebral Palsy Center. You know, my introduction in graduate school to kids who had cerebral palsy was, yeah, they have trouble talking. <laughs> right. Okay. That helps me. So, you know, I entered that job thinking, well, I'm going to work on, you know, all these oral motor kinds of things and help them, you know, learn how to talk. And I happened to be paired with a, a, a speech language pathologist who had been at the Cerebral Palsy Center for many years. And she was doing what we now call augmentative communication stuff with the students there and what that entailed this is just horrible but i'll tell you um it involved going through magazines that you had and cutting out pictures and pasting them to a board and assigning meaning to them because even then even then you know i mean you had mimeograph machines that you had to, I mean, it was great because you got to smell the fumes from the mimeograph machine, but, you know, you had to actually have something on the film in order to mimeograph it. So at any rate, um, it involved really cutting out pictures in magazines, but she was really dedicated to that. And she really said, you can go ahead and you can put ice in their mouth and you can put peanut butter on the top of their, the roof of their mouth. And you can do all those things, Tracy, if you really want to, but I've been doing this for a really long time. And it really pretty much doesn't work. Now I'm not saying that that stuff doesn't work. So I don't want people to interpret that I'm saying oral motor, um, facilitation and, um, stimulation does not work. It certainly does. But for the majority of the students that we were working with who were identified as having cerebral palsy so severe that they were in a separate school, that was before 94-142, I'll also have to say. But it was they were segregated and they were very severely involved. So first of all, I learned what I needed to know about cerebral palsy from the OT. And secondly, I learned about augmentative communication. And it was at a very, very primitive level for a long time. It was that way. Um, but, you know, what I found was that all of a sudden these kids that, you know, i had been working on saying, you know, talk, putting the your tongue to the top of your mouth, they were able to point to a picture of two people from cut out from a magazine talking and, oh, you're talking about talking. I get it. Yeah. So,
1: oh, this um so Tracy, this really brings me to my next question because what you're really talking about here is the beginning of AAC, like cutting out pictures, right? to now where we live, which has dynamic um, voice output devices, so many apps, you probably couldn't even list them all. Um, uh, and so let's reflect on that for a second. So, where have you seen the AAC go from from back then, thirty years ago, to where it is now? How have you, things have, how have things have progressed? And then yeah. along those same lines, I guess. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Like, is there stuff that's uh, like super exciting or is it also sort of terrifying? Like what, what, what is it uh, like? Cause there's the reason I say that is I, I, I'm always nervous that there's a, maybe we're forgetting the history there and we're not learning from our mistakes with a, if you kind of rush into things without kind of looking at the breadth of um, I'm sort of a guardian that way of history, you know, I want to look back and say, so I want to make sure we're not making some mistakes that we've already been, we've already made that mistake. Let's not do that in the future. So what's your thought, your whole retrospective here being a veteran in the field?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I appreciate that you're doing that because I do think that the, the past is very instructive. Um, and so, you know, going from, you know, cutting out pictures in magazines, we went to, you know, people developing picture sets, like picture communication symbols, which were terrific. Oh my gosh, thank God. Now I can just flip through this book that's you know this thick and find the picture of talk and that'll be great. Of course, there were five pictures of talk, so whatever. Um, what I found though, is that after you know, a few years, um, people were getting together, at least in my area, people were getting together who were doing the same things that, that I was doing, cutting out pictures saying, come on, we can't keep doing this. There's gotta be a better way. And, and in fact, there were things that were developed and there were things that became better. I'll never forget the Zygo 16, which was, you know, this huge Zygo probably doesn't even remember Zygo even around anymore. I don't know. At any rate, there's this huge board, like as big as a window practically. And it had 16 locations with 16 LEDs that if you pushed a switch and this was getting into switch technology. So also, you know, as people were developing this whole idea of, well, wait, there's a light switch that turns things on and off. Why can't we do something like that for, you know, access stuff? So indeed, this is this was a board that was so huge. And along with these LEDs, there was a picture. And so you would push the button, whatever it was, and it would start going through the lights. Now, this was row by row by row. Um, And that was the only way you could do it. And when you got to the picture that you wanted and you saw the light, you could push the button. It didn't talk. But your communication partner would say, oh, you're talking about whatever. And the person would acknowledge um, and affirm yes or no. So it evolved into that. And then when... When things were really getting hot in terms of hot by hot, I'm, I'm saying when people really started looking at augmentative communication and we got some great engineers involved in the whole concept of communication, what I found at the initial assessment um, you know, point was that people were very reluctant to recommend a speech output device. It was sort of like, whoa, first of all, it cost a ton of money. And secondly, why can't we just keep doing this, you know, thing with the pictures? I get it, it'll be fine. Well, you know, then we started saying, and that again, you know, then 94 142 came about and kids were more mainstreamed. And people's, you know, I mean, we were stretched pretty thin in terms of communication partners, and kids were being included in other, you know, mainstream courses, and there wasn't a person necessarily with them to interpret things. So the whole concept of independence became really important. But for a long time, it was really, really a challenge. And you were really, um, you know, people pointed fingers at you if you recommended a speech output device saying, oh, sure. Yeah, they can recommend that. You know, who's going to be paying for it? Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a big movement with insurance companies and certainly Medicaid to say, look, we can reduce the amount of, of time, thus money you're going to be spending on this individual's care if you will pay for these devices that can enable more independent communication, thus voice output systems. So initially, my assessments were very, very oftentimes critiqued because I always I always had a, a, a desire to have speech output for the individual. And so I oftentimes would recommend the speech output devices, of, of which there weren't that many um, initially. Um, as you say now, Chris, I mean, oh, my God, it's sort of like, Really? How many apps are there? I don't know. My phone is already full. So at any rate, you know, I think that that's been, I think the history has come from no voice output to now. Now the concern that I have is that there's no consideration for that kind of backup system that is not voice output Mm -hmm. because we know that there are those situations, you know, all you have to do is go to the swimming pool or to the beach um, and you see that kids do not have their voice output systems because they don't want to get them wet or get them screwed up or get sand in them or whatever it is. And so how are they talking? They aren't. Right. They're totally They're non-communicative in those environments because they don't have any kind of a backup system. So I think the pendulum has kind of swung way far one way. And I think we're realizing now, oh, my gosh, we need to be thinking about how do we do these backup systems? And now I think that's our biggest challenge right now. How do we do backup systems for these very complicated technology-based Um, Voice output systems. What is your backup? What is your board, your non-talking board? How do you access that board? So I think that's a huge challenge for us now in the field that I think we really need to spend some time on and um, do some critical thinking about it. So
1: something uh, that you said there, I it resonated with me. In that, do you remember? So you, I, I, you were there when uh, Rachel and I did our presentation on coaching, right? At Ashes yes. recently, and I asked the question to this room of uh, 100, hundred, hundred fifty people, and I try and ask this question whenever I get to talk about AEC, and that is how many functional, I use that in quotes, right? How many people do you know who primarily use AAC can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it, right? And how many of you have even met somebody that can do that, right? In the room, kind of raise it. You raise your hand, right? I remember you're like, oh, of course, Tracy is not a bunch of people who can do this. But most people who are supporting and working with kids have not, right? And the reason I bring that up in context here is because every person that I have met that has that ability has some sort of alternative system. Like they have their primary system um, that they use mostly, but then they've always whipped out in this situation, they whipped out a, a, a letter board, right. And they're going to be talking, which makes me think that might be a, um, something to guide people to as a, uh, we've got to be teaching people the alphabet, right. So um if we had some sort of QWERTY, low-tech QWERTY board, that could be maybe a good alternative system when your primary system's not available. What are your thoughts on all of that?
2: Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, I mean, even like the alphabet thing, I mean, that certainly moves us into the whole literacy area and, you know, really looking at, you know, how we decode language and how we teach decoding skills and encoding skills and all of that. That's really important. But, You know, we're we're looking at it from a literacy perspective, and I think we need to think about it from a communication perspective, just as you say. And in fact, I'm trying to remember as you were talking, Chris, and I can't remember it at all now. But um, I think that that Yoder many, many years ago wrote about something where he was working with I think they were young adults or adults. And they were using the alphabet as a cueing system, not necessarily as, you know, a spelling system, but they would use letters to cue people about what they were trying to talk about. Just as sometimes people use pictures that really aren't, you know, the pictures aren't really saying what they want to say, but they kind of are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it kind of gets you thinking, oh, are you thinking about something that has to do with blah, blah, blah. And so I think we need to think about letter boards or, you know, I mean, that certainly is one way to look at it, but, you know, looking at, at, Queuing systems, um, and that gets certainly all into the whole communication partner piece. That is a big a big thing for me right now is is thinking about our role in terms of communication partner um, instruction. And your your presentation that you and Rachel did at Ash, I thought was really instructive as well as very stimulating for me because what I've done is go back and look at the whole you know the whole coaching the beginning of this whole coaching. Um, Um, methodology. And it really is incredibly significant in terms of how I think we need to define our roles as facilitators of AAC. Um, And we need to be, (laughs) yeah, I mean, we need to be identifying, you know, it's not just, we, we need to be working probably more, with communication partners than individuals who use AAC systems because they're the ones that are gonna be facilitating. You know, I, I, I used to say my favorite thing to do is to discharge a client. And people would go, you are just, first of all, you're crazy because you only do voice output stuff. Now you're totally crazy because what you want to do is discharge people. And I said, no, 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 you don't get it. The reason I like to discharge people is because they have a support system that's going to instruct them way more than I can once a week. I mean, really, how much am I going to do to show up once a week or twice a week or three times a week for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour? Um, You know, we really need to be thinking about how we're how our role needs to be defined just as many 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 years ago and I'll never forget Sarah Blackstone was one of the people who who challenged Asha American Speech Language and Hearing Association to say hey people who need who are otherwise unable to use their voice to communicate need to be working on things other than peanut butter on the top of their mouth they need to be working in the area of augmentative communication. And she was really viewed as a real rebel. And ASHA really was, no, 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 no. I don't think so. What we really need to be doing is icing. Let's do icing, let's do brushing, let's do all those other things. And it wasn't for a long time that ASHA didn't finally acknowledge and realize that AAC was a practice area and that it was an alternative as well as augmentative approach for people who otherwise were not using speech to communicate and they develop position papers and on and on and on. And now of course it's a big area in ASHA but it didn't start out that way. And I think that's what we need to be doing in our profession. And I'm talking about speech language pathology but any profession that is a facilitator of a person using an AAC system, we need to say outright and have it written and develop a white paper or a position paper or whatever we need to do to say, and one of my primary roles is communication partner instruction. If you hire me, you need to know that that's what I'm gonna be doing. And so my caseload may be only 10 kids that are using devices, but a hundred others who are facilitating use of that device.
1: It's it, it makes so much sense to me to spend so much more time with the communication partner. And I thought um, that the the comet coming out of the sky the pandemic uh, slamming into the earth was going to be the movement for us. Like, this is it. Like you're not going to be able to be with uh, doing direct instruction with a number of these individuals, but you will be able to do coaching um, and instruction with the, with the communication partner. And I think we saw a huge spike. Like if they, they, the, the, the graph that I'm picturing in my head, we saw a huge spike in that. And for some reason now, um, two years into the pandemic, there's this rubber banding effect of going back to direct instruction. And I don't, I, and I part of it maybe is that that system that we were talking about earlier, but the system's not really set up to support coaching yet. And it takes some people. Uh, conversations like the one we're having right now to talk to the organizations like ASHA to say, well, we got to change the system, uh, sort of like you're saying Sarah did, right? And, and oftentimes that's a really, um, like I, you can point back to history again with every rebel who said, we got to do it differently being shouted down. (laughs) Um, But then they turn out to be like, yeah, that's, but actually that's what we need to do.
2: Well, I totally agree. And I, it's interesting that you bring up the pandemic stuff because I too thought, and I, and I witnessed it. I, I, my colleagues were, you know, they were talking with the moms and the dads and the siblings. And I thought, yes, this is great. But You're right. It's the rubber band thing. So what's happened now that things can be back to kind of like normal, if there is a normal people are still systems are still saying, Oh, and by the way um, your productivity needs to be at 80% and productivity in non-school areas as well as maybe some school areas is measured by what you bill. And you can only bill. I mean, you don't have an ICD 10 code that is communication partner training. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, so you don't bill that, you, you squeeze in communication partner training, but you also have to spend time with the student who's using the AAC system in order to be able to bill for that. So that means your productivity, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lose-lose mm-hmm. situation. You know, you're forced to bill for direct contact with the person using the device. And you try to squeeze in the other stuff, which is not very effective. Mm -hmm. And yet you're meeting your employer's demands in terms of productivity or caseload or whatever it is. So the systems out there need to change. But let me tell you, the systems are not going to change until we say, we, the people that they are hiring say, and by the way, let me define for you what a speech language pathologist's job is who works in the area of AAC. They do this, they do this, they do communication partner training. That means this, this, and this. And if you're hiring me because I have to be productive at a certain level, I may not be the right person that you need to hire. Mm -hmm. And I and I get it. The systems. I mean, so, you know, for example, at children's hospital, I had a productivity requirement because they had a productivity requirement to earn X amount of dollars for the institution. I get it. I understand. How do we change it? I think we change it, you know, from the ground up. And that's not easy.
1: Well, so there's a two two things that give me hope. The first thing that gives me hope is that these systems were put in place by people, and therefore people can change these systems, right? Uh, it might take some time, take some effort. So what you're saying there is, is continuing to use your voice to make that change. And then the second thing that I think you spoke about this earlier, and that is... Um, the, the call to money, money talk, like when when the, the whole idea of starting with a speech output device or recommending a speech out device, why would we do that? You know, that's going to cost us a lot of money. Well, because it'll actually save you a lot of money in the long run. Money talks, right? So the same thing here, uh, I could see those systems are in place. Well, look, uh, if we do communication partner instruction, it'll be in less sessions than if we do direct instruction, less sessions means less money that you're doling out over time. Oh, suddenly we're listening. You know what I mean? And yeah, I like exactly.
2: <laughs> and, and, you know, the other piece to it, Chris is not only, I mean, I think that totally makes sense. And in fact, I have argued that very point with Medicaid once with a client, I said, if you will let me, um, go ahead and, I I couldn't bill for it because there wasn't a code, but if you will reduce the time that I need to spend with this client and let me do communication partner training, I assure you, you will not be paying for the lifetime for a speech therapist to work with this client. And I think we need to say that to our school people too. I can say to an administrator, you don't need to have me, you don't need to worry about the fact that I can only make it to your school once every two weeks because- If you let me work with communication partners, they are the ones that are going to be facilitating this. You don't need to worry about me. You never need to see me again. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Those students are going to be continuing to progress in the area of communication in the ways that we want them to progress. So I think that totally makes sense. I think it totally makes sense. But the one thing that I think we also need to be doing, in addition to using our voices and defining ourselves differently, is we need to have a systematic way to be able to document that we are doing communication partner training. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one area that I think as speech language pathologists and other instructors, we haven't been very good at. We can put together an IEP and somebody, they can use that to say, yeah, you're addressing this goal, you're, you've made progress in this area, blah, blah, blah. But when we do communication partner training, we say, well, yeah, I'm going to work on Communication partner instruction. I'm going to do. I'm going to teach that person how to do better wait time, or whatever the strategy is. And we don't have a systematic way of putting that together. And I think that that's something that we need to be thinking of. Um, Kent Walsh and McNaughton wrote something in I think it was mm, 2005 about an eight step process
0: mm-hmm. the for
2: training. Not- And I love that process because it's very structured. Now we can fill in the fluff, um, but it's very structured. And I think that if we could not only say with our voices, this is what I do, but also say, and this is the program that I'm going to use. For communication partner instruction, um, I think administrators would say, oh, well, this isn't just kind of somebody, you know, talking out of one side of her mouth. They really are going to be doing this. And I have a way to document what I'm doing and they have a way to hold me accountable.
1: So all this all that is in place. Uh, It's now just making it way more. Uh, widespread, because I'll tell right. you, Tracy. We actually use that impact model. We use that in our neck of the woods, in our specific school district, and we measured some aspects of the communication. We did a whole coaching, communication, um, and language initiative in our school district, and we saw huge gains. But we were measuring the. We saw gains in the students, but we all mostly saw gains in the communication partners. Like saw their their skills grow, their confidence grow, which I. Uh, You heard me say it at the coaching session that I feel like that's a a way that people will stay in the profession because people are leaving. When I say the profession, I mean education in general um but uh because they feel like well I, know, I have these skills i know what to do with them and that pr- that process um gives you a, a systematic way of moving through it that is has some fidelity behind it so it, it all yeah, sort of and you don't feel you feel awesome. don't feel
2: lost i mean how many times do you work with teachers or classroom assistants and they go well i'd really like to help but i don't know what to do and then what you also end up with and you probably found this in your work those people end up being the instructors mm-hmm So they're the peer coaches uh, and they're the team leaders and they're the ones they don't need you anymore. Sorry, Chris. They don't need you anymore. Um, So I think that that's, yeah, I agree. I think that we need to implement these programs and we need to be talking about them. And I give you all a huge amount of credit for doing that, not only in your podcast, but also in your presentations.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. Well, let's talk about for a second here, the, um, about pre-service education right so there's all what we're talking about now is changing a system for people that are already working but we also have the future here coming up in, going through colleges and universities and if they were learning this system and then they came in day one to a job say okay uh, uh, how am i going to do communication partner training right how am i going to do the put my my minutes in that bucket instead of a direct instruction bucket um so what do you think is the state of pre-service education and we don't have to speak specifically coaching just in aec in general what are your thoughts
2: um well i find it very troubling um because um i well and i understand once again you know i understand the reasons but that doesn't make it right um but students are coming out of programs similarly to the way i came out of my program knowing nothing about cerebral palsy because nobody told me anything about it, Um, but they're coming out of programs. And unless they happen to be doing for speech now, I'm talking about speech therapists now, unless they happen to be doing any kind of an internship or their clinical fellowship year or whatever with somebody who's working in the field of AAC, they don't know squat about AAC. Um, I mean, they know what it is. They've been given the definition. It's on a test somewhere, a multiple choice question someplace. And so they know it from that perspective, Um, but they don't really know very much about it. And, you know, I think that I don't think that we've moved very far in the field of education from where I was when I started. And what I learned about AAC, cerebral palsy, whatever it was, was on the job training. And here's the problem with that. The people that we're working with can't afford me taking three years to figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's just not okay. They don't have the time to do that. It's their life that's at stake here. I mean, it would be sort of like saying, well, I know you've got a really, really bad heart valve and it really needs to be replaced. So I'm going to study up on how to do that and I'll get back to you. Okay. three. I years. mean, yeah, <laughs> that's just not acceptable. That's not okay. But I think the way that We can address this both now as well as looking at hopefully looking at changing that and and working more with university and college programs and instructional programs to say, you know, I I oftentimes say when I'm talking about, um, you know, what can you do as a consultant you may not make any money doing this, but call your local university who may have a program, doesn't have to be in speech path, it can be in education or whatever, and say, could I do a guest lectureship for your class? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, having taught, and you can say this too, I'm sure, having taught these, these courses, if anybody ever came to me and said, could I just take over your class this week, I'd go, are you kidding? Yes, of course you can. I don't care what I had planned which is probably nothing, but, um, you know, you'd be more than welcome to do that. So I think that's one thing we can do. The other thing, however, that I think we can do is really emphasize the area of language. Because when it comes down to it, um, you know, we've got these devices that really all are you just have to learn the recipe in order to learn how to use them. It's just a recipe. You just learn it. And if you have to have it in front of you to read it, that's fine. But once you learn it, you can do it. What you can't do as a recipe is teach language. Mm -hmm. And I think what we really might need to be thinking more about and emphasizing more in our pre-service training programs is not saying, well, let me tell you everything I know about a such and such device or about how you program pages or how you color code, blah, blah, blahs but what we really need to be thinking about is how do I teach language? And you teach language with people who use AAC systems the same way you teach language for somebody who doesn't use an AAC system.